Hello and welcome to the No Man's Land podcast. I'm here with uh, Akash Pound, Steve O'Neill and, very excitingly, Paula Surridge from the University of Bristol. Welcome Paula. Thank you, nice to be here. Welcome Steve. Thanks Martin. Welcome Akash. Thank you Martin. Akash, I'll start with you off mate. The government has very recently made a new proposal on Brexit to the EU. Could you give us a quick overview of that please? Yes, yeah, so we finally this week um, seen some sign of uh, Boris Johnson and the government's plans for how it intends to break the uh, impasse over the, the Irish backstop, which was, of course has been the, the absolute uh, thorny, thorniest issue through the Brexit process and essentially was the issue that, that prevented Theresa May from getting her deal through uh, due to opposition from uh, DUP and many of her own backbenchers. Um, and so what the new proposals um, suggest, um, and this is based just on the sort of short explanatory note that's been published, the full legal text is, is, is private still, and I probably wouldn't understand it, if, even if it were published, not being a lawyer. But from the explanatory notes, I mean, what they're, what they're uh, suggesting is that at the end of the uh, transition period, um, so at the end of, of 2020, um, then if no agreement had been reached on a a future trade deal, future trading relationship, um, that would ensure that there would be no hard border um, on the island of Ireland. Then we would enter into uh, essentially a revised form of the backstop as previously proposed. And under the new proposals, um, the idea is that Northern Ireland would essentially remain within the the EU single market. So it would be in what they're calling an all-island regulatory zone. So for things like food standards and uh, sanitary and phytosanitary checks, as they call them, um, to ensure that businesses, particularly in the agriculture sector, can continue to trade easily across the Irish border. Um, But the differences uh, with the previous proposals um, and which make it possibly likely that this is not gonna <laughs> this is not gonna fly. Um, first of all, the idea is that this would only come into effect with the consent of the Northern Ireland institutions, um, which don't currently exist. But if they were to exist, uh, the implication is that the DUP or the Unionist community at large would have a would have a veto um, over the, the them them coming into effect perhaps explaining why the DUP say they'll support the proposals. And the other big thing is that, unlike what was previously proposed, there would be a customs border in Ireland um, of some kind. Northern Ireland, along with the rest of the UK, would leave the European uh, customs territory, be free to do its own trade deals, etc. But meaning that there might need to be, well, there would need to be customs checks between north and south parts of Ireland. Steve? Thanks, Akash. That was a really good uh, summary. The thing that's really, um, I think, the million-dollar question with this, and just sort of standing back from all the detail a minute, is how serious are the government about agreeing this with the EU and then getting it through Parliament? Or is this more about the optics ahead of, say, a general election or who gets the blame for any fallout for no deal and things? And to us, I'm none the wise. I don't think anyone really is. And it's, again, is this a master plan or are we just kind of muddling through? Yeah, it's something I've, I've seen that the problem at the moment is that the, this deal can get through potentially the current House of Parliament but can't get through the EU, whereas the previous deal could get through the EU but not the House of Parliament. So um, we are a little bit stuck. Akash? 
Yes, I mean, I, the, the initial reactions from the EU side, um, including most importantly from, from Dublin, um, are not promising. Uh, so Simon Coveney, the, uh, the, the foreign minister, um, he's quoted saying, it will be no deal if this plan is the final offer. So um, as it stands, that's, that's quite categorical. Obviously, negotiations uh, take place, and, and the history of the EU is that eleventh uh, hour deals can be struck, and so on. So, so one shouldn't be completely dismissive of it. But the, the initial mood music um, has not been particularly positive. And on the northern Northern Irish side, um, the DUP welcomed it, um, but almost all other, not only political parties but business groups and so on. Um, didn't um, have, have, have said that they, they don't believe this is this the right solution. Um, so that's not particularly uh, particularly promising for the chances of this getting through. As for whether it would pass through the House of Commons, I wouldn't be so uh, confident about that either. Um, it would you know you'd have to wait for the for, for a deal to be done at the EU level first, and that might then change the domestic political calculations too. But um, that there's 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 so many reasons why um, MPs have have managed to oppose every uh, proposition and deal so far put before them that I would not be surprised if that weren't the case again. Mm. So I think we really need to talk about one of the big recent issues in politics. So Afkash, back to you to please explain the Supreme Court's decision to overturn the government's prorogation. Was this a constitutional coup, a matter of judicial overreach or the government's own fault? <laughs> I'm definitely not going to get, start using the coup word. I think that's been thrown around uh, a, lot, a lot too um, liberally uh, by both sides, actually, in, in recent months. No, I mean, the, the Supreme Court um, is the highest court of, of, the, of the land and it was um, asked to judge a very complex constitutional question about um, the extent to which the royal prerogative power um, exercised on, on ministerial, prime ministerial advice, of course, um, essentially could be constrained by, by, by the courts, whether there were legal constitutional limits um, on, yeah, what, on how the prerogative power to prorogue, to suspend parliament could be used. Um, clearly, you know, raised passions um, to some extent, in the case, um, and in the end, but in the end, there was a unanimous verdict among the eleven um, justices that it was a justiciable matter. So that the courts did have uh, the, the, the 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 power to to intervene, um, and that um, on this particular occasion, um, proroguing Parliament for five weeks, far longer than a usual prorogation, at this moment where. Of course, there were huge questions to be resolved about um, about Brexit and, and the potential deadline of thirty first of October fast approaching. Um, that this prorogation um, ran counter to the constitutional principles of Parliament being able to hold the executive to account. So they um, they struck down the prorogation. It was a big deal. We've never seen anything like it before. Um, but it may not actually have changed the, the, the politics or what happens in Parliament um, particularly. Um, it's meant that, yeah, there's, there's, there's scrutiny and, and debate going on that there otherwise wouldn't be, and that's a good thing. Um, but the arithmetic is the same, the, 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 the trade-offs and the dilemmas that nobody's managed to crack in three years remain as they were. 
So let's move on to the politics then. So it's been conference season. Uh, Steve, could you just run us through what we've learned from this conference season, starting with the Lib Dems? Uh, yeah, I mean, with the whole conference season, it's kind of hard to know where to start. So much kind of happened um, from uh, uh, sexual harassment allegations on the PM to Labour sort of, hey, use a coup word again, but coups against their leader. Um, I thought I'd focus on the... Uh, the policy positions that are coming out uh, and for all three of them the summary I would give it's very much retail politics now it's uh, the art of uh, technocratic cleverly worked out nuanced proposals that has gone out the window and there's nothing um, uh, that sort of says that more than the Lib Dems big policy thing which is of course to revoke Article 50 without a referendum now um, it's about as clear well it is as clear of a main position as you can get and that is obviously the kind of voter pool they're fishing in and right now it seems to be working um, it's worth mentioning it's kind of heavily fudged and caveated so it's only going to be their policy in the case of an overall majority following an election which is uh, very unlikely even in the case that they were the largest party or a big party in the coalition they go back to the people's vote position um, but this is a clearly a, a, a policy that's going to and I've seen a little bit of this in opinion polling on, on, on Joe Swinson's favourability it's going to divide people more people are going to be favourable to them and people who are supporting Brexit are going to hate it so it's divisive but we're in that kind of time when um, you, you kind of need these big bold policies uh, and so I've seen various people on the Lib Dem side saying what we're doing is fighting fire with fire with this policy it's like we, you know, we can't be a nuanced uh, sort of careful party anymore we've got to be as bold as say the Brexit party are um, so that's hard to summarise the Lib Dem position. On Labour, um, lots of red meat for the um, party sort of faithful. Um, I thought a, th a theme was banning and abolishing things. So Ofsted, the school inspector, was one getting banned. I think the, the story there really is just teachers don't like Ofsted. They want teachers' votes. Lib Dems have a very similar policy, actually. Again, very clear retail politics. Um, also banning prescription charges, which I think is an interesting one because if my history is right, that goes right back to Labour splits in the early days of the NHS. And uh, uh, so I wonder whether there's some undertones there. Um, as far as I know, prescription charges, when you look into it, a lot of it's mean tested anyway. And I don't know whether this would be in, in practice really targeting people who are uh, struggling to afford, um, afford medicine. I don't know. There can always be loopholes with this thing. I haven't looked into it. Um, the uh, final thing that's getting banned all the names private schools, and that uh, is uh, probably the one that's going to be the biggest talking point. Uh, they're not actually saying they're going to ban private schools and it's a motion of a conference rather than, say, a manifesto pledge or something. Um, but uh, talking about stripping assets from some of the private schools, uh, talking about taking away tax, um, tax breaks they get, and which the, the sum total of these policies would ban them. And I think that's, in terms of when I look at Twitter and things, generated more uh, debate than anything else. Um, but anyway, the retail politics for Labour, Conservative, similar, similar stuff. But I think the big thing was the thing we just talked about, which is the attempt at a Brexit deal that, that's come out. They, they, I think, had already announced a lot of the things... Um, that, uh, and spending priorities that they had around the NHS, around uh, policing. Law and order NHS is a big theme for them at the moment. The big new one, I think, was the national living wage increase to £10.50 that Sheffield Jeffrey did the other day. Um, but it's more of the same, I think, uh, from the Tories. But that would be my summary. Something I just wanted to, to notice, it seems like we, we've talked before in this podcast about whether or not austerity is dead and gone. 
From looking at the Labour and Conservative conferences, it certainly seems like the politics has moved on beyond austerity with the um, uh, sorry, Labour start splurging money left and right, something like social care and the likes of Paul Johnson and the IFS and John Rental from the Independent being very critical of the ability to actually raise and pay for the pledges they've made. And Johnson also noting that it's not actually plugging as much of a hole as they'd like to believe, but it certainly seems to be a, a movement to the, to the left to sort of reinforce that leftist politics on Labour. But I think the Conservatives have actually moved certainly fiscally more to the left as well, potentially, with uh, an increase in the living wage £10.50 per hour within five years and, crucially, to lower the age threshold from 25 to 21, plus more spending on the NHS, more per-pupil spending in schools and, as you said, a focus on police and crime, which is a sort of red meat position and also going after this um, the uh, economically left but politically right section of the electorate that I think it's fair to say are, are up for grabs at the moment. Yeah, just the thing I picked up on is that no one's really talking about economic management. I remember the going back to the 2015 kind of time in 2010, economic management was a huge, the huge thing. If you looked at sort of opinions on what's the big issue of the day, that that, that issue or things like employment were always near the top. Um, and that was reflected in kind of political conversations. And there's just not a lot of talk about that at the moment. Um, it's much more about these kind of retail offers. Hmm. Yeah, Akash? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, 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 the relevant context, I think, is, all, is there's a political calculations being made, there's an election ahead and so on, and obviously a lot of what the parties are saying is conditioned by that. But there is also an objective uh, reality that the deficit is far, far smaller. It's just far less of a... Of a, of a pressing challenge for the public sector for the government uh, finances than it was a few years ago. So um, it's not just about political calculations. There is actually more money to go around. Maybe not as much as um, certainly the Labour Party <laughs> would be uh, committing to. I mean, they, they, aside from the things um, already mentioned, I mean, they're talking about abolishing tuition fees, lots of nationalisations, yeah, free childcare and social care and so on. Very, very expensive commitments. Um, but as far as the Conservatives are concerned, I think, you know, they've, they, they've spent nearly a decade um, squeezing the public sector um, and the deficit's down to whatever it is, 2% rather than 10% of, of GDP. So I think it's a natural time for them to move into a, a period of, yeah, being a bit more... Uh, a bit more generous, uh, more focus on infrastructure and capital spending as well. Paul? Well, one thing I was going to raise about this was despite these big kind of retail pledges from the from the, the two big parties, the one thing that I think we learned from um, the conference season was that the more the public see of Labour and the Conservatives, the higher the Lib Dem vote share goes. <laughs> and that could be really important actually in an election campaign where the electorate is quite volatile. They're going to see a lot more of these pledges and a lot more of this politics mm. during the election campaign. And so far that appears to mostly be to the benefit of the Lib Dems. Mm, that's interesting. That's <laughs> a good, uh, good point. And if I could ask Paula, do you, do you think the, uh, the, the relative good showing of the Lib Dems in the polls at the moment is more then of a, a plague on both the big houses or is there also a pull factor particularly 
to do with obviously Joe Swinson as a new young leader. They've got a distinct position on Brexit. I mean, what what do you see is really driving that then? So I think it's I think it's a little bit of both. So there's certainly an element in our politics on a kind of plague on both your houses. At local elections, we've seen loads of independents get get elected or get much bigger vote shares than they have before. Um, so there is an element of that. But the the other side of that is that that plague on both your houses can now split because they've now got the Lib Dems to pull them in one direction. But for, for Leave voters, they've got the Brexit party to go to as well. So whilst the Lib Dems will be gaining quite a lot from the, from the revoke policy in terms of the Remain side, um, they're very unlikely now to pick up the kind of protest vote that they used to get um, in 2005 and 2010 that has more leave leaning because that has got another outlet that's got the Brexit party sitting there waiting to pick those up. And I think it is worth actually just setting out the latest so the latest YouGov polling has the Conservatives on 34, Lib Dems on 23 and Lib De- and Labour sorry on 22. So currently in some polls at least the Lib Dems are overtaking Labour. And Brexit party still on 12, 13, something like that. Yeah. Uh, Now, I've looked at sort of uh, a bit more of a historical uh, context for this. So since August, every poll has shown a Conservative lead, but vastly different proportions. So from one point up to 14 points. And uh, most of the polls that say, don't just do an average of all the polls because they're actually measuring very different things. So uh, essentially... They don't know. One of them is hoping that they're right, but we don't know which one. But I just wanted to say, only half now, according to this YouGov polling, 52% of 2017 Labour voters now supporting Labour. They've lost 48% of their support. And fully half of the um, 52%, i.e. 26%, now support the Lib Dems. Lib Dems, by contrast, have retained 76% of their 2017 voters. So these are these are quite big numbers. Now, Labour's shedding their support left and right, really. Steve? Um, yeah, that, that, thanks, Martin. Uh, so I, I theorised in a blog I wrote the other week about what the ceiling for the Lib Dems might be. And my um, my theory was that, uh, that the ceiling might be around what they're at the moment. And the reason for that is that I remember back in 2014, I don't even recall when Nigel Farage and Nick Clegg debated the EU... Um, uh, sort of like a year or so out of 2015 general election. Now, I was working in Demetri at the time, the theory was there, was that you had a sort of pool of people who felt very strongly kind of pro-international, pro-European. It was about, it was a bit less than the 23% they wanted. It was something like 15 to 20% in the stuff that I saw. And the time we were polling for 8%, so we wanted to fish in that pool. Now, it just struck me that that number around about 20% is kind of similar to the number they're polling on now. So it, the theory was that it's people who always felt quite strongly remain, who are now in big numbers going for the Lib Dems, I'm assuming away from Labour, but I don't have evidence for that. Um, but what I wondered is that whether the hard sort of remain position would then struggle to attract more people, certainly without a, a more obvious sort of normal policy offer. So that was my theory. I wonder if anyone's got any or pull out feedback. So I think what's different right now in the, mo- in the most, most recent polling to the position in, I mean, I, I kind of use the 2010 baseline for the Lib Dems as my starting point for everything I think about. But what's different now to earlier in the summer and to 2010 is that they're finally starting to chip into Conservative Remainers. And we haven't seen that. The Conservative Remainers have been really quite stickily Conservative. 
Um, but the most recent polling um, from Opinion shows them starting to get that vote. And if that vote starts to crumble to the Lib Dems, the ceiling goes considerably higher um, and, and puts into play all sorts of seats that you perhaps wouldn't think of. Um, I've, I regularly regularly say when I see um, those particularly on the left claiming that the Lib Dems can't win seats because they're in a low third position from 2017, that's the wrong reference point and they can easily win those seats even if they didn't do well in 2017. Mm. And of course it's not just uh, Conservative Remain voters, it's also some Conservative Remain MPs. <laughs> Um, who Absolutely. switched to the Liberal Democrats or, you know, Roy Stewart resigning his party membership. We had the, the group of 21 or so who lost lost the whip. Not quite sure what happens to all of those. So, so you know, at the top in the parliamentary party, there's obviously been a bit of a uh, purification, <laughs> an ideological purification, you might say, on, on, the, on the Brexit issue. So does that then potentially translate into a lot of those voters you're talking about also feeling this is no longer our party. Yeah, so I think those kind of elite cues are quite important for voters. So if they see the, the kinds of champions of their position, like Ken Clark, thrown out of the party, that's going to move some voters. And these these groups tend to be quite reliable voters in that they turn out to vote regularly. So they're going to not just stay home, they're going to look for another another party. And obviously if some of their... Um, MPs then join the Lib Dems. That, that sends that signal that yes, it's okay to it's okay to move to the Lib Dems. So one thing I wanted to talk about is the political parties, and I think this seems a, a good time to do it. I think something that's not insignificant, certainly for this podcast, talking about centrism and the sort of centre ground, is the dynamics within the Labour Party. So. The Labour Party now, the Labour leadership, have control over, obviously, the leadership of the Labour Party, the National Executive Committee, the General Secretary, the conference floor, but have fallen at the the long-desired hurdle of purging the party of um, critical MPs who don't share the Corbynite sort of far-left ideology. Now, in some cases, this has been, the, a lot of cases, this has been the local members have failed to um, deliver the results that the Corbyn leadership have long hoped for, that, that put the, the people, the members in charge, and they will sweep away these darn centrists and moderates and replace them with um, Corbyn-supporting MPs. So whether or not the Labour Party is changing, it's obviously been changing for a while, but maybe it's come up against uh, whether a ceiling or just a temporary sort of block in the road. But another dynamic... We touched on it with the Conservative Conference. Is actually the changing nature of the Conservative Party. So the Conservative Party have become much less fiscally conservative in recent times. And I think something that isn't really talked about enough is the relationship between Johnson and Jarvid, the PM and the Chancellor. Is I thought it was a slightly odd choice to make Jarvid Chancellor, but then that's because I don't really know what Johnsonism is or really what Jarvidism is. And it's got me thinking that over the last 25 years, the two teams of PM and Chancellor that have won elections have been as thick as thieves, you know, really, really tight together, although obviously Blair and Brown had their um, ups and downs in person. But they were also, crucially, not only tied to each other, but they were tied to a political project. In each case, the modernisation and um, 
more moderate moves of Labour into New Labour and the Cameroonian Conservatives. Now, I can certainly see that a Johnson-Jarvin access, if they are on the same page, could see another modernisation of a Conservative Party, though slightly oddly, back to the Hangham and Flogham social policy issues, but with a new found fiscal um, generosity, let's say. And I personally think I've nothing particular to add to this other than I really think that it's an area and a relationship that doesn't receive as much attention as it should do. Steve? Yeah, the thing that strikes me about that is that um, where, say, the Blair and Brown, Cameron Osborne, or even um, McDonald and Corbyn, they, they, they were leading their party in a certain way. Whatever you think of them, they, you clearly know where they came from. There was kind of consistency in their positions. It looks like Javin and Johnson have kind of been pulled by their party into this kind of um, a right-wing Keynesianism, I've heard it called, mm-hmm. but this sort of the more socially conservative, more uh, left-wing on the economy position, which, I mean, Theresa May kind of went that way a little bit. Um, but the, the, as far as I know, they haven't got a history of 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 those positions. Um, so it seems like they're being sort of bashed around by events rather mm-hmm. than leading them. Paul? You could view it in a, a slightly different way in that the the um, Corbyn, McDonnell, Cameron Osborne and so on were trying to reshape their parties. They were party-facing. What Johnson and Javis seem to be, to me, is more voter-facing. Um, and actually, the positions that they're setting out, there are there are loads of voters in those positions for them to capture. There are loads of these left-leaning, socially conservative voters. They're the biggest group amongst the um, electorate. The problem they have, though, is they also don't like the conservatives. Mm. So they've got they they can they can give them all these offers they like, but they've somehow got to break down that antipathy that those groups feel to them. Um, mm. And at the moment, there's not very much evidence that they're actually managing to do that. Um, I can't find any evidence that those groups particularly like Johnson over over other people. Um, but it does seem to me that that's the difference, that this, that this is really very voter-facing, mm. whereas the others are quite party-facing. Lankesh? Yeah, so I mean, you, you're, you're talking about the continued um, toxicity of the, of the Tory brand in, in certain parts of England, yeah, which is... They've, they've 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 struggled to overcome certainly for for, for many years. I mean, I think the the, the uh, area where um, I'm also personally uh, you know been following for, for for professional reasons, but that I think is quite um, interesting <laughs> as far as the as, as far as the the announcements at conference are concerned are to do with the um, the English devolution agenda. Um, so Boris, um, over the summer after coming in, I mean, he'd already made a few, you know, sort of rhetorical commitments to to, to investing in the north and um, uh, building up infrastructure and rail and and, and, and so on. Um, but we began to see a bit more signs of concrete developments. Um, so uh, the uh, Northern Powerhouse Minister Jake Berry, I mean, he gave quite an interesting speech on this, talking about. Um, wanting the entire north of England to be covered by devolution deals and to have metro mayors and the additional uh, control over local infrastructure and investment decisions that goes goes along with that. So I think that's a, a big part of their strategy, actually, to try and win back, you know, those are areas where, for, uh, as, as you say, Paula, for many years, the Conservatives have, have just been rejected out of hand by many voters. Um, I think we should need to talk about the the actual electorate 
here, and this seems like a, a good time, but aren't all of these attempts to move politi- politics back onto sort of old ground futile, Paula? Because the only thing that matters is Brexit. Isn't that the case? No. <laughs> I probably better not leave that answer just quite there. So if you... Brexit isn't going away. Um, but for both the Conservatives and Labour, the logic of their approach is that they can unite their voters on old politics. So the Labour Party agrees on lots of these kind of left-wing policies, no problem, and their voters do too. So they want to do that, and it can be a little, it, it can be partially successful because not everything is about Brexit. Um, it feels like it most days, if I'm honest. But actually, if you ask people what the most important issue is to them, only about half of people say, I mean, only about half, obviously, that's a huge amount for any single issue, but it is half of people that say that. So there's another half of the electorate who finds something else more important. The problem for Labour and the Conservatives is that for quite a lot of them, the second thing they find important is also connected to the new politics rather than the old politics. So for some groups, if they don't say Brexit's the most important, they say the environment. And clearly that's going to, that lo- it actually loads on both, but it, it's more kind of new politics than old politics. And for some groups who don't say Brexit, they will still say immigration is the most important issue. Again, not on that old politics line. There are voters that are concerned about the NHS and crime and the cost of living. And I think particularly the kind of conservative announcements during August in particular, not so much the conference season, seem to be really trying to hit those, really trying to hit those targets. Um, so I do. I, I think trying to move politics back only onto the old ground are futile. But I think assuming that everything is Brexit is equally problematic. That we've got both of these both of these politics going on at the same time. Steve, I sometimes wonder how much of Brexit is about Brexit. And that sounds like kind of crass to say, but there's so much rolled in there about wandering a democratic vote, for example. Uh, anti-establishment feeling. A bunch of other theories have been given for that. And I just recall that. Only a few years before the referendum, people weren't talking about Europe. It was nowhere near the top of the list of sort of concern. Now, I know immigration was, and so it's hard to disentangle those things. Um, but just so much rolled in with Brexit, I just wonder how easy it is to say that it's all this, this is, you know, Brexit is a driving issue. Or, to put it another way, that our future relation with the EU is really what's on people's minds. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, is it a, a time to talk about the, the various factors that are now in the mix? Yeah, I mean... I, I don't think it's it's people's future relation. It's, it's our future relationship with the EU that's top of people's mind. But what happens is leaving the EU becomes a kind of totem, mm. a kind of symbol. So most people outside, you know, most people that I see on a day to day basis are not talking about the backstop or the latest deal or you know what's happened in the negotiations. It's really not what interests them at all, and they're not following those divisions. And Brexit, but 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 the delivery of Brexit has become this thing that lots of other stuff gets wrapped up into. Um, and that's where that kind of pull towards a culture war starts to happen, even if we don't even if we don't quite get there yet, is the fact that it can be used as a shorthand and so much other stuff can kind of get rolled into it and, and stuck to it. So what about the the importance of like liberal and authoritarian values? This is something that Joe Swinson has said that the old politics of left and right is dead and gone. Now everything's about the liberal authoritarian axis and values. Does that really matter? Is that just a, a part, an element, one thing that's in the mix? So it would be it would be really nice for Joe Swinson if that was true. 
that would make her job an awful lot easier. But I don't think it is. I think what we see is liberal authoritarian values are important to people, um, but those old left-right values are still there as well. So we get this kind of fragmentation into different groups who are pulled in different directions according to what's important to them at a particular time. And I think Jo Swinson's going to discover that her coalition that she's pulled together around Brexit is going to be a real difficult one to hold together when she's got to talk about austerity, as we've seen, or if she's got to talk about you know other kinds of economic issues then that coalition will start to fragment in the same way that the Labour or Conservative coalitions fragment on, on the Liberal authoritarian axis. So, yeah, it would be really nice for the Lib Dems if that was true, but I don't think it is. <laughs> Does that mean, or is it too early to say, that the old party coalitions, political party coalitions, are just harder to put together and the, the fragmentation means that we're much more likely to have coalitions between parties rather than within parties. That would depend critically on our electoral system. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a fair point. I was just reflecting on the uh, liberal authoritarian authoritarian thing. Actually, back when we um, started this blog, it was a sort of a blog podcast. It was a a case of the Tories are moving right, Labour moving left, Lib Dems nowhere to be seen about nine months ago. So the kind of no man's land, perfect homeless space felt like the middle of the left-right divide. Uh, and then that kind of changed, it seems. We don't really know where the Dems are now economically in a very clear way, but their resurgence, you'd think, would fill the hole, but actually it's become something slightly different because they are now sort of really out there on the extreme liberal part of that divide. Um, and what you've kind of got is a strange gap in the middle where the only kind of moderate party on Brexit, if you can call them that, is Labour, but they're so far left on everything else. Um, and there's kind of a place of anyone wanting any kind of compromise. It's this kind of sort of strange sort of central mm-hmm. position on both the both the left right and the liberal authoritarian axis. So it's sort of the no man's land is still there but looks a bit different. And I was sort of reflecting on that the other day. Yeah, John Curtis wrote a piece in the Times recently. Centre ground on Brexit is not the way to win voters, which is not a very good news for our pod, certainly. But one of the key things, um, so he breaks down various ways that there's basically very little public appetite for compromise. But one of the things that lies behind Labour's unpopularity is that uh, leadership and economic competence, Labour tanking, um, no one's satisfied with Corbyn's performance as leader and he's seen as weak and indecisive on Brexit. So maybe there is a, a sort of case of the old and the new uniting to kick Labour while it's down. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen that Curtis analysis. I'd be interested to do so. But I just wanted to ask what Paula thought about a specific claim there. So this idea that trying to find a compromise central ground position on Brexit isn't the right way forward or for, for parties who want to win votes. Is, is that true? Um, or given what you were saying before, Paula, about um, Brexit is just a sort of totem for lots of other things, and people don't actually care about the, the the detail of the deal or the you know what's in the withdrawal agreement or the nature of the backstop and so on. And people in Northern Ireland might do, but um, in the rest of the country, clearly the detail of that is not what's motivating them. So, do, would you therefore conclude that simply getting any form of of, of Brexit through? Um, would be enough for a lot of voters 
just because it has that symbolic totemic value, in which case, um, you know, maybe a, 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 a compromise softer Brexit could do the job. Or how, how does that fit together? Maybe I'm misinterpreting what you previously were saying. So I, I think the problem with that lies in the Brexit party, <laughs> because I think any deal that people could possibly put through that might have sort of seen the job done is just going to be portrayed by the Brexit party as not good enough. And so it's always going to be portrayed as not real Brexit. And therefore, people will not accept it as such, because on that on that issue in particular, Leave voters actually trust Farage more than they trust other other people. So I think that's the big problem for that compromise position, is that the Brexit party are always going to show, whatever happens, they've got a route to blame people for not doing this properly. Um, and I used to think, well, maybe, you know, that maybe if we came out without a deal or a very hard Brexit, the Brexit party would recede. I don't think they're going to go away. But actually, having thought about it more over the last couple of weeks, I don't think that I don't think there's any Brexit outcome that that kind of mutes the Brexit party. So obviously, if we ended up with with remaining, that's just a disaster as far as the Brexit party is concerned. Their their numbers go through the roof. If we end up with a deal, similarly, they can portray it as this isn't real Brexit. But if we end up with no deal, and even a fraction of, of, of what the Yellowhammer documents say happens, then the Brexit party position is surely just, well, you didn't do it properly. You didn't prepare hard enough. This is your fault. You made, you've made a mess of Brexit. This isn't real Brexit either. Um, so I, I just, I don't know. I, it's not a very hopeful, not a very hopeful analysis, but it feels to me like wherever we end up, um, the Brexit party are going to be able to to claim some kind of high ground as mm-hmm. far as representing leavers. And I suppose if it's perceived to go wrong, for example, in a no-deal scenario, not only can they blame the British establishment, they can say it's because of the EU refused to to, to, to work with us and, 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 and it's, that it's their fault. And that reinforces their narrative as well, yeah. doesn't it? Who would have yeah. thought that the Brexit Party would end up being the, the communists of the new age? There's nothing wrong with it. It's just not been implemented well enough. But... I suppose one, one question we have to, if we're going to talk about a compromise deal, is it the case that I suspect it would be that a soft Brexit deal would pass the Commons only if there was a um, uh, like a secret ballot? Most of the opposition parties will uh, oppose any like large swathes of the Labour Party, all of the SNP, all. How many of the Lib Dems up to now? Not enough, probably, to make the difference. But they would all oppose anything that the Conservatives brought back. So there is no way, unless suddenly MPs decide to and stop being tribal, of which I think there's more chance of me being the next South End manager than them uniting in the national interest. But unless that happens, the Tories will never be able to offset losses to the ERG on a soft deal with MPs from elsewhere, and will never be able to offset losses to elsewhere if they please the ERG. I think is that the problem that the the um, the House of Commons is too unrepresentative of the country, at least in that particular way. You could argue it's. I mean, if you've got a fifty-fifty split in the country, mm. you could argue actually the problem with the Commons is that it's very representative <laughs> of the country. Mm. Yeah, potentially. Okay, well let's let's move on to who puts these people in the Commons and how representative they are uh, in the of the country. So one one key issue is changing electoral geography. 
So I have in front of me a piece by James Furlong of the University of Southampton. Conservatives have gained support at Labour's expense in largely older, white, working-class communities. Now, in the past, when t- Labour and Tories have tried to fight, have fought each other for marginals, especially in the South and the Midlands, it's been um, sort of marginal voters, swing seats, swing voters. Now they're trying to take heartlands off each other. This is a completely changed dynamic, isn't it? And do we have any idea of how likely this is to how it's likely to play out? Earlier today, I described this as trying to do a jigsaw puzzle without a picture while the pieces were changing shape, and, <laughs> and I still stand by that because there are just so many moving parts in this that I could take any given seat and give you a series of scenarios all of which seem to me to be equally likely, but which produce very, very different results. And I think anybody making firm kind of total seat forecasts is on very shaky ground at the moment. Um, as I said, if you give me a seat, I'll work through the, I, I can go through the, the maths and the, the step, you know, everything in it and tell you what I think are likely scenarios. But amongst them, there'll also be some scenarios that could happen, um, but, you know... Um, take a bit more. I was widely derided on Twitter for suggesting that um, East Surrey could go to the Lib Dems, but I could show you a whole bunch of workings that don't make that unlikely. Um, And so, yeah, I just don't think you can make those kind of big claims at the moment. There's just too many, too many moving Mm. parts. I suppose that supports the theory that Brexit is not now the be-all and end-all for most voters. It's just one of very many elements that have been thrown into a mix which at the moment is very dynamic very fluid and we don't until things settle down we don't know the relative sort of trade-off positions of importance between all of these different factors yeah i mean i'm certainly not going to get into the game of of, of, of plucking forecasts out of the air but i think uh and we're interested in, in, in whether you agree but in a more fragmented uh party system with this you know, dynamic uh, factors that you're describing, um, it does seem to make it more likely that we'll have a even more um, weird translation of votes into seats, you know, depending on various factors, but, you know, one could see the wrong party, so to speak, come out ahead, you know, party winning fewer votes, winning the most seats, um, or... You know, we've had it obviously in the past with with, with large third parties getting uh, massively um, underrepresented in terms of seats historically in the Lib Dems, more recently UKIP. But you also sometimes have it the other way. The SNP, um, of course, won fifty six out of fifty nine seats with uh, nearly fifty around fifty percent of the vote share, but still an absurd overrepresentation. Um, but because it was only Scotland, and that's only you know less than ten percent of the Commons, it didn't really make as much of an impact in terms of the debate around electoral reform. But if you started to have very bizarre outcomes like that at the national level, um, then surely people are going to start questioning whether first-past-the-post is at all functional for, for, for the current political realities. If I can add to that, you, once you've got a system which looks likely in, um, in large parts of England where you've got four parties that are all reasonably competitive, 
parties could easily win seats on 30%, sometimes even less than 30% of the vote. So you could end up with some bizarre scenarios of, you know, a, a really pro-leave MP representing quite a remaining constituency and vice versa because of the way these votes vote splits end up. And, and like I say, I mm. wouldn't particularly want to call no. it, but I can see all sorts of scenarios where seats are won on quite low vote shares that lead to some difficult questions as mm. far as representation. Yeah, I, th- I think that's logical at the moment that you'd end up with a scenario where two, you know, a seat is hugely leave. The two most vocally pro-leave parties, I'm going to leave, although Labour is often treated as a Remain party, even though it's manifest that the last election was to leave, but that's a rhetorical thing rather than the policy thing. But you could well have a Labour, uh, sorry, a Conservative Brexit party marginal, let's say, where the two Brexit and Conservative knock bells out of each other and the let's say the Lib Dem sort of appears through the middle and wins representing the you know the third of the odd of the uh, the electorate so um, one thing I just want to end on which is a hopeful piece for uh, the moderates and obviously we're talking here about talking about centrism so I've got here a piece from the from the Times from the 8th of September, sorry, the Sunday Times. Uh, voters view Tories and Labour as extreme parties. The centre ground of British politics has been vacated, it says, as more voters see the Conservative and Labour parties as extreme rather than moderate. And this survey by, uh, sorry, poll by YouGov, so 52% of those surveyed uh, consider Labour extreme, 24% very extreme. Isn't this part of the reason why the Labour and Conservatives are not doing so well in the polls at the moment? Because they are seen as so extreme that they're leaving their voters behind. I think you need a little bit more on the data um, to look at that because what you could get there, especially when we started in in 2017 with everything kind of polarised around Conservative and Labour, more or less in, in England at least, is that you could just find all the Conservative voters saying Labour's extreme and, and all the Labour voters saying Conservative's extreme. And it's not actually telling you very much about the fit between between the parties. The thing I like to watch to see whether or not there's that kind of mismatch is the don't know in polls. I like mm-hmm. that. That's the thing I like to keep my eye on. Um, is If that's starting to rise, that suggests that there's a mismatch between the parties and their, and their previous voters. Um, and so that, that's the thing I keep a really close eye on all mm-hmm. the time. Yeah, you know, just nostalgia thinking back to how things were sort of maybe 10 years ago or so, it would seem that like um, Labour would compete for people who were voting Tory and vice versa more. And now it seems very much like it's about who wins the battles against other smaller parties, um, probably in all elections really, but so we normally think of Labour and Lib Dem battling for the same voters and Conservative Brexit Party, I know it's more complicated than that. Um, but I guess it, it doesn't matter if the people who think you're extreme, you're just not targeting anymore. And maybe it's a sad thing that we don't have, you know, we used to have a politics where people would try and have these broader appeals and maybe it's not the case. Well, as, as, as we were just discussing, if you can win seats, potentially even win a, uh, a majority on 30, 35% of the vote, uh, which used to be not long ago... Uh, a bad result for for an aspiring party of government. That was a defeat. Um, you know, when, when when Blair was winning his his landslides, um, he was obviously over forty percent. So so yeah, if, if that's the target now, then of course you can get away with just appealing to 
um, your, your base and, and people on, on your side of the, um, of, the, of the wider political spectrum. I suppose one sort of final question to end on then. Is this because voters have become polarised and entrenched on either side and we should look forward with trepidation to US-style culture wars over here or is there some hope that maybe things won't turn out like that? I think there's some hope. So one of those hopes like has up till now been in our electoral system. Um, but more recently, as, as voters are fragmenting, that electoral system is becoming more of a straitjacket. But in the UK, we are still very much divided along two different axes, which don't neatly line up. So the very fact that we talk about Tory Remain voters and Labour Leave voters shows us that those two axes don't completely line up. And as long as they don't, there's always going to be different coalitions to form on different issues. Um, And so that should help to mitigate some of the kind of culture war tendencies, despite um, some groups very much wanting to import culture wars politics into into the UK. So I think at the moment, we've still got enough of a cross-cutting divide to stop that completely lining up in the way that it has done in the US. But our electoral system now might start to force us back along that path. If it starts to be the case that, for example, those Lib Dem voters, as they did in 2017, see Labour as the only way of stopping um, Johnson, then you can start to see how that polarisation could come about. I don't see it as likely at the moment because the Labour Party is not popular amongst large swathes of those voters, I can put it gently. Um, so I don't see it happening, but you can see that the potential the potential is there for it to happen. I mean, at risk of answering a sort of totally different question, the one thing I would say is that we discussed a bit about how Brexit is more of a totem than anything else, and I wonder, given a few years of time, when that becomes maybe less of an issue in people's minds, and maybe given some better leadership, maybe there's a chance for less divisive politics, but it kind of feels that we might uh, have a wait before we get anywhere like that. So just my my response to that point is, have you been to Scotland recently? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, you see that these things don't go away. It will become less salient for a while, probably, but there's going to be a hardcore of whichever side it goes, either people who wanted to leave and who didn't, or people who wanted to remain who still want to rejoin. And I don't think it's going to go away. Mm. Um, easily, even if it does kind of, I mean, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a bad thing if we could at least you know turn the dial down a little yeah. bit. Mm. Um, but you can see if you look at, at Scotland and the independence referendum, it doesn't it doesn't go away? So maybe it's decades rather than years. Then I'm going to hope. <laughs> <laughs> yes, maybe we should talk about Scotland on another uh, yeah. episode of this because that that divide may well uh, yeah. be back in a big way in the next few months as well. Great. Thank you very much, Akash. Thank you, Steve. Paula, thank you so much for coming to join us. It's been absolutely fascinating. Really grateful uh, for you to come in and and talk to us. Uh, Thank you very much for listening. This has been the No Man's Land podcast, and uh, we hope to see you next time. Thank you very much. Goodbye.